Hey everyone, thank you for joining me on the BIPOC Outside podcast. I'm Chris Cromwell, and today we're sitting down with Benji Alexander. Benji took the ski world by storm in 2020 when he declared his intention to ski for Jamaica in the Beijing Olympics because Benji was a fairly new skier. What a lot of us missed is there was a much bigger picture, and so we're going to talk about that. So let's get into it, shall we? But before we get into it, of course, you know, this show doesn't happen without our title sponsor, the Outward Bound Canada Training Academy for Outdoor Professionals. With program locations across Canada that offer free programming to address skill gaps in the outdoor sector, the Training Academy is building the next generation of outdoor leaders. With a commitment to meaningful Indigenous representation and by prioritizing BIPOC and 2S LGBTQ inclusion, the Academy is reimagining what the outdoor industry looks like. Check out their website to sign up for their free spring and fall sessions. Visit obctrainingacademy.ca or find their partner link on our website. We also need to shout out our presenting sponsor, Mountain Gazette. Mountain Gazette is a biannual large format magazine celebrating mountain culture, featuring beautiful long-form storytelling from real people who love the outdoors. These are stories you sit with and savor. Each issue also contains stunning photography. These are magazines you'll keep and come back to. Mountain Gazette. When in doubt, go higher. Check them out at mountaingazette.com or find their partner link on our website. Benji, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? I'm absolutely fantastic. The body is a little bit sore from all of the skiing that I've been doing, but feeling great. Soul is charged. So I feel like I know this for most people, but for you, the answer could be anything. So where are you today? Found near a mountain in the winter, currently in Revelstoke in British Columbia, Canada. Nice. I was just there loving it. So we know you as an Olympic skier, the first Alpine skier for Jamaica. Yeah. But you came about it to a circuitous route. So so tell my audience, tell the people like how you got there. So I think the most interesting thing is that I'll be celebrating my 40th birthday in a few months. But I didn't come to winter sports until the age of 32. That was the time I had my first lesson. And we're actually nearing on now my seven-year anniversary of that, of that first lesson. And so basically, I spent the better part of a decade touring the world as an international DJ. I was fortunate enough to be able to apply my trade across 30, over 30 countries, across five continents, and just really had a lot of fun with that. And it was through this profession and through kind of like the extravagant places in the world that I was flown to to perform that I found skiing. So I was flown to Micah Heli Ski Lodge, which is not too far from here. It's a couple of hours drive from where I sit right now. And I was flown as an attendee, as a DJ, should we say. And on one of the days of heli skiing, I was flown out in the helicopter with the guests to go and have lunch with them on the top of the mountain. And I saw them do this incredible thing, which was to put on their 130 millimeter wide powder skis and just disappear off the ridgeline. And I thought it was the coolest thing I'd ever seen. And I set my intention to get out there and learn how to ski. And so my only goal at the get-go was to become a proficient enough skier to heavy ski. And so my ninth day of skiing back here in 2017, and sorry, I missed one fact, 2015 was when that DJ event happened. But in Christmas of 2017, my ninth day of skiing was actually heavy skiing back here at Michael Lodge. It wasn't pretty. It, it wasn't, it didn't go so well. But I got out there on it, and I've done it many times since, much better. And then one of the interesting things is that being non-white in winter sports, being a non-white skier, we kind of stand out. 
And like to this day, I still have this mental picker in my mind as to how many people of color I saw on the mountain today. The answer for today was zero. And, you know, on a good day, it might be a half a dozen or something like that. And so being one of the minorities of people of color on the mountain, people would always kind of talk about that. And my friends knowing that I was of Jamaican descent would always talk about the winter bobsledding team, the, the 1988 Calgary team, and would yeah. always make these jokes about the movie called Runnings and, and kind of make these hints that I should consider going to the Olympics. And I guess they just kind of took that a little bit too seriously. <laughs> so from powder skiing on day nine, which is wild because I know people who've been skiing for 30 years who've never been heli skiing, to ski racing, like that's a jump. Yeah, they are very, very, very different to discipline. And a lot of the things that you learn in one will do you a massive disservice in the other, especially as it pertains to weight balance and, and all of that stuff. But yeah, one of the things that I really loved was just going fast. One of the things that really sucks about powder skiing is that you go and do it with this fresh powder. And most of us live near mountains that you may get 10 of those epic days per year, but you can find good quality groomers on most mountains around the world, most ski hills, even out east. And so this whole concept of just going really fast was very addicting to me. And that's how I transitioned from this love for powder into just like this love for potentially being a ski racer. Amazing. So in an incredibly short time, you went from first powder day to deciding to go fast to the Olympics. What does that training regime look like? Did you sleep once? <laughs> <laughs> so I've skied 450 days in the last three seasons. And you know, bear in mind that those, well, two of those seasons were through the pandemic with limited travel, with shortened seasons, with restrictions on on where we couldn't, couldn't go. And so that number I was hoping would have been much closer to 600 or 700 for this particular project. Um, yeah. the body is very, very sore for those 450 days and learning something that's as physical as ski racing. And I don't think a lot of people really understand how different ski racing is to normal skiing, but it's, you know, the body is definitely feeling uh, like it's aged a decade in the last two years from, from all of this activity, but those. There was a lot of sleep. Sleep is super important, but there were a lot of social sacrifices. I sacrificed my social life. My whole DJ life was put on hold. There were no more going to clubs until six, seven, eight in the morning. That's yeah. But that still underlies like an incredible sort of natural ability. Last year, I skied 90 days and I am nowhere near the Olympics. So, right. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, it, uh, training, yes, but natural ability also has to be an element of that. So when you... Got to, I like to ask this to everyone I know who's been to the Olympics. What is one thing for those of us that watch it at home that would shock us, that would surprise us about what the Olympics is actually like when you're actually there? Condoms. So <laughs> the International Olympic Committee has been giving out condoms at the Olympic Village since 1988 during the height of the AIDS pandemic. And I've had it on good advice that most Olympics, whether that's summer or winter, turn into a very raucous celebration after people have finished their, their events. I don't have any first-hand experience of that because this, of course, was the COVID Olympics, as was last year before now in Tokyo. So most of us had to leave directly after our event, but it turns into most of the listeners that have an experience of kind of hanging around after your exams are finished at the end of the year and you've got free time on your hand and you you've done this thing and you've crossed this finish line that you were running towards for the last year or two and there's this relief and this joyous celebration ride that's basically what the olympics turns into as soon as people have finished their their events awesome so when you 
when you first started this journey, we started to hear about you in free skier and on blister. There was really an understanding of what the goal was. It's like, oh, this, you know, this individual has decided sort of later in life in terms of like professional athleticism and skiing to become an Olympic athlete and they're making it. And that's fascinating. But we really didn't understand the broader goal. So educate us. Yeah. So as I said, it started off with the kind of nods and prods from people around me. Go have a look at this thing. And when I realized that, albeit very difficult and challenging, that this thing was potentially possible, I'm always one for a challenge. And so it started off as just something as simple as that. Can I achieve this very, very challenging thing? And as, as I started to progress through that, I, I realized how underrepresented people of color were in the mountains. I just thought that maybe this was just a small segment of, of the mountains that I had been traveling to. I spent a lot of time out in Wyoming. Wyoming is a very, very white state, one of the, one of the widest states. And I just thought that maybe it was by virtue of where I was geographically. And as I started to get closer and closer to this goal and started to really receive a lot of media attention, I realized that the entire industry was really screaming and just trying to find people of color that could be ambassadors for the sport to help other people follow in their footsteps and to, to bring more people, more diversity into, into the whole space. Um, and as a result of that, as a direct result of that, I received far more media coverage than my skiing ability of the time warranted. And I was very thankful for that. I received sponsorship and, and interest from sponsors far earlier along the whole chain than I thought I would. And again, because these sponsors were looking to associate themselves with people from diverse backgrounds to have an ambassador of sorts on their roster that would encourage other people to buy their products. And really getting deeper into the whole qualification process is how I started to learn that, wow, there just really aren't that many people of color that are interested in these sports. And it's not because the sports, are, it, it, you know, winter sports, skiing and, and other things, snowboarding, et cetera, are racist. It's just that our parents didn't do it. We don't see other people like us do it. In, the, in America in particular, most of people, the majority of people of color are, are located in urban centers away from rural mountains. And so like we as, a, as people who just don't have the, the criteria tick that would naturally lend ourselves to be winter sport athletes. So as this progressed and as I started to learn more and more about the problem, I thought it'd be really interesting to, to turn my pursuit of going to the Olympics as just something challenging and difficult as a personal goal into building the foundation of what this thing could become. And so I had a lot of outreach from other potential athletes of Jamaican descent. I'm actually speaking to eight athletes or their parents and or their parents right now who will be fighting for two Alpine spots at the 2026 games. So that's super exciting. And of those eight athletes, I would say that nearly all of them are better skiers than I am. Most of them have skied their entire lives. And some of them have been ski racing for almost a decade now, even though they're only 15, 16 years old. So they're much better athletes than I am or probably ever could be. And what I'm really excited about is broadening the scope. So not only just having what I did in Beijing be the start of the Alpine ski team for Jamaica, but also trying to see other disciplines, other sports where Jamaica could potentially excel and maybe one day bring a medal back to the country in the winter side of things. And so I've been looking for those sports that have these high levels of transferable skills from things that you can train on dry land in the summer in Jamaica. And the two that I've identified have been speed skating and cross country. I'm super excited about cross country because I believe that unlike with alpine ski racing, which requires 
just so much technique, which only comes from time on mountain, which is expensive and geographically prohibitive. Cross country is 80% about your cardio ability. How much of a cardio engine are you? How much of a, you know, what's your VO2 max? What are your endurance levels? And Jamaica has lots of incredible track and field athletes. And so I'm now working on a project to try to go to Jamaica and actually build out the Nordic cross country team. And what's really exciting about that is those athletes can come from Jamaica proper. Instead of having to rely on the diaspora, they can be athletes that were born and raised that still currently live in Jamaica, but maybe will go abroad for two, three months a year for training and competition, which makes it a lot manageable from a financial point of view. I also think that's exciting because it then brings more interest into the athletes that are participating in the winter sports, because these are now actually Jamaicans from the island as opposed to people such as myself who have one Jamaican parent, but haven't spent much time on the island. And so maybe the locals look at my efforts a little bit different from someone who was born and raised uh, a block away from them. Absolutely. Community matters. And you know, the diaspora is always complex. It's always, mm. yeah, it's interesting. So you are currently acting as the president of the Jamaica Ski Federation. Is that correct? Yeah. <laughs> And so you're, you're looking at things from sort of that higher level. And I know you're working with quite a few sort of organizations across North America, ones that lots of our listeners are here, have heard from. So tell me about the work. Yeah. So I've done a couple of engagements with the Doug Coombs Foundation, which is local to Jackson Hole. And they are one of these awesome charities that have identified that there are many people inside of their community that don't actually ski. There is a large population of Mexicans in Jackson Hole who are you know, domestic helpers and construction workers, et cetera, but their kids don't get access to skiing and they just stare at these mountains, which is kind of a sad thing. And so the Doug Coombs Foundation, Doug was a kind of like a linchpin in the in the community in Jackson before passing away in an avalanche. What they do is they provide equipment, transportation, ski passes, and training of sorts. So I've done a little bit of work with Doug Coombs. Also done some work with SOS Out Outreach, which is the exact same thing as Doug Coombs, but on a much larger, much broader scale. I believe they've been around for about 30 years and have helped tens of thousands of young kids do the very same thing and get access to winter sports. Because they just think it's such a, a shame, such a travesty to be living in one of these places where you're in the foothills of these incredible mountains that the people are paying thousands of dollars to come and visit on holiday and to come and you're not actually getting up there and experiencing this thing. So those are two of the big charities that I'm working with. And so are you leveraging what you're learning from them to build out your own program? A li little bit in the future. So the beautiful thing about the, the situation that I have right now, as I said, with the eight athletes that are better skiers than I am, or at least will be by the time we get to 2026, the Alpine side of things already starts to have, already has that momentum in the flywheel. And hopefully we'll have some kids that both a girl and a guy that will do great things in 2026 and encourage even more people to consider doing this. So I'm super excited about that. The reason I'm excited even more so about the, the Nordic side of things is because then it allows us to use some of these kind of relationships that they've been building. So there's another charity called Winter for Kids based out of New Jersey, Sean Miller or Shane Miller is how you say it. It's spelled, it's, it's written Sean. Sean. It's spelled yeah, Sean. Sean. Yeah. Sean. Yeah. And so he's offered some support with regards to once we have identified the talent that we'll be using or that will be our front runner, shall we say, from Jamaica, then to bring those guys to New Jersey, which is a short halt from the island and use that as a training facility. So I'm super excited to do that. And so, yeah, another thing that's interesting about the Nordic side of things is that 
a lot of people won't, they'll kind of know this without actually knowing the figures, but in Beijing of last year, there were a record setting 91 countries in participation. In the Tokyo games the year before, there were 206 flags. So there's a huge disparity, more than double the number of countries that attend the summer games. I think it's about 12,000 athletes in comparison to 3,000 athletes, almost four times as many athletes. What's interesting about cross-country and Nordic skiing is because it's so much about just having a strong athlete, as I said, cardiovascular output endurance, I really believe this could be the unlock to bringing another 30 or 40 countries to the next Olympic cycle, having maybe 30 or 40 countries representing at the Winter Games for the first time ever. And so I'm hoping to go out to Jamaica at the end of the ski season with a coach. So if there are any cross-country coaches that listen, that are interested in a crazy whack-a-mamey plan like this, I'd love to go out to Jamaica for a month with a coach and just basically find that talent that is just outside of the bubble of being national representatives for Jamaica. Athletes that are you know, 10th best on the island and they're never going to make it to the Olympics or to represent the country because they're just outside of that level of proficiency, but could be an incredible talent to transfer across to cross country. I'm going to take a film crew out there with me. We're already in discussions with that. And once we've done that and we have this proof of concept, then we can speak to the IOC um, and these other 115 countries that were in participation in Tokyo, but didn't come to Beijing and say, Hey, here's an avenue to have your first athlete come to the winter games. And hopefully that might even change the face of Nordic skiing as well. Yeah, it's true. We do think of the winter Olympics as a sporting event for the global North. Mm-hmm. It's that's really yep. sort of been the, the perspective of it. And, and it makes sense when you don't think about it too deeply, but you know, you're thinking about it much more deeply than that. Yeah. Well, I just think that there are many sports and there are even many case studies. So this is maybe familiar with Erin Jackson, the African-American lady who brought back a gold medal for the United States just last year. What many people may not know is that the first time she ever put on ice skates was in 2000, end of 2017, and she qualified for Pyeongchang. She didn't finish that well, but within four years of actually putting on those, those ice skates for the first time, she was a gold medaler. And so the unlock is to find those sports that can be cross-trained. So she was an incredible inline roller skater before moving across to ice skating. The unlock for winter sports is to find those sports that have a lot of cross-training with the sports that can happen in places without cold weather, without ice, without ice hockey rinks or ice skating rinks, et cetera, and train people up to a really high level and then just flick them across at the last moment. And I think that in that way, then winter sports can be something that is open for many, many more countries and just a lot more of an interesting spectacle for people to watch. So you're building the proof of concept in Jamaica. Where do you want to take it from there? So first step would be to find some, find athletes that I believe could not just meet the minimum criteria, but actually give the old guard of the Nordic countries. I mean, it's even the name in the name, right? <laughs> give them a run for their money. Some athletes should be able to break into the top 10 over the course of the next Olympic cycle or two. I think the longer term place for this would be to see, you know, the podium of cross-country skiing look more like it does for our marathons where you have like, you know, the African nations that just dominate in those long distance, middle distance disciplines, being able to apply their skills to cross-country skis. And actually then you have this thought that all of a sudden it's just been flipped on its head. And instead of all of the medals being sucked up by Norway and, and, and the other countries from that part of Northern Europe, 
now we have this thought that was very, very, very white, shall we say, not in a derogatory way, but now this you know, global international sport that everyone can take part in. This is, this is unlocking so much in my brain. I'm thinking about the last time I was in Ken, which has a lot of altitude changes in yeah. Ken for people who have never been there. The amount of international, like either, you know, from within the African continent or further afield global, running teams that were there training because it has the elevation, yeah. it has the climate, and it has the coaching expertise. Yeah. And yeah. so now no, it's, it's, it's blown my mind more. wide open. Yeah. Well, that's the thing as well, right? So lots of the countries in Africa have that elevation as well, which is which is kind of a, a gating factor for those that don't understand why elevation makes a difference. You know, once you get up to about 7,000 feet, there's 25% less oxygen in the air, right? Instead of being 21% of the air content being oxygen as it is at sea level, where most, you know, the large majority of the people live, as soon as you get a few thousand feet up into the air, there's huge differences in the body, almost like a car engine is not used to running on this fuel, this air source that has less oxygen. And that's why lots of people go to train at altitude. And then it's, it's almost like a hack, right? You train at altitude, you get your body used to this inferior fuel supply, which is air with limited oxygen. And then you go to your training, you go to your competition altitude, which is lower, which has a much higher quality fuel source. And then all of a sudden your engine, if we're following on an, an analogy, just works a lot better. But yeah, I, I'm super excited for this. And I think that in a short period of time, two or three Olympic cycles, that whole sport could be completely changed. Yeah. This is fast. And then that 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 opens the doorway then for biathlon and, and lots of other things. But also and not just to diversify the podium. And I mean, we in the ski world sort of understand that the ski community is aging. Right. What about growth in the sport? So that's super interesting. Let's use a let's use another analogy. Eighty percent of the people that watch bobsledding, and let's just rewind back. Lots of the things that we watch during the Olympics are sports that we'll only ever watch during that period. Right. I stayed up till three a.m. this morning watching Novak Djokovic play tennis. I watch tennis all year round, like at least the Grand Slams. But as it pertains to Michael Phelps winning hundred meters in butterfly. I only watch swimming once every four years. <laughs> and there are lots of sports that are like that. Most of the people that are listen, listening right now fall into that category because that's the majority of the planet. And they will only watch bobsledding once every four years and probably when it's the Jamaican bobsled team. But there is a World Cup of bobsledding and there is, you know, there are these series of events that happen around the winter. And if you look at that sport, 80% of the spectators of that sport are over the age of 60, male, German and white. And so like, if you think about a sport that may not even exist in the Olympics in 20 or 30 years time, when that generation passes away, a lot of our sports are kind of succumbing to that. Kids are getting much more interested in esports when they can win millions of dollars by being part of a team that plays Fortnite or something like that on, on a computer screen. And so bringing more diversity, not just from a race perspective, but just interest from more countries into our sport is going to help it from the point of view of longevity. And as I said, that's a big part of the reason why I've been sponsored by, you know, I, I, I nearly share the exact same sponsors in the Kayla Schifrin. These are the, some of the best countries, best companies in the world that have decided to support little old me because they understand the diversification of the audience of people that partake in this sport is going to help with the long-term survival of the sport. So it's not just a race thing, but it's also bringing more people into this thing that we love. 
Amazing. And take a bit of a sidestep dealing with your sponsors. And, and this is a conversation that's sort of been really active since the protest cycle after the George Floyd murder, with yeah. so many companies reaching out to athletes, artists, content creators from the larger BIPOC community. How do you navigate having an, a partnership of equality with them without sort of getting into that token trap? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a really good question. And I feel that sometimes people get a little bit into, into a tizzy around this. And I think as long as what you are as an athlete or an ambassador, what you are being asked to do doesn't compromise any of your own moral values, then getting that spot maybe in some form of tokenism is, I don't believe it's a bad thing. You have to start somewhere. And as long as what you're doing, be that wearing the clothes that I wear or be that using the equipment that I use is not compromising any of my moral values, then I think that we have to start somewhere. And, you know, I can say very, 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 very bluntly that my skiing ability doesn't warrant the level of sponsorship that I got, but the intrigue around the story and the kind of the intrigue around it being this continuation of cool runnings and the brand value that Jamaica seems to carry with it everywhere. And the fact that I'm hopefully unlocking the sport and bringing more people to the sport has allowed me to kind of punch above my weight class from a, from a business and from a sponsorship point of view. And so like, I, think, I think people know if they're being asked to do something in a very kind of tokenistic way and if it feels wrong. And if it feels wrong, then people just shouldn't do it. That's a great answer. I really like that answer. Getting back into growing the sport, something I hear from a lot of people when I'm doing this work, something I've heard from extended, you know, members of my own extended family. When I talk about certain things, the response is that's white folk stuff. You know, mm-hmm. we manage to self-segregate this internalized self-segregation from certain sports or certain places. What's your strategy to overcome that? Particularly when you're talking to people that those sports in those places can't necessarily happen in their home countries. So I just read this awesome article today that was published on the Burning Man website. A friend of mine, Erin, brought a piece of art to last year's burn. And a big part of why she did that is because of that exact statement. That's white people stuff. Why, why, why are you doing that? Why would you go there? And so she started this kind of movement called the Black Burner Project, which you can find. It's just called Black Burner Project on Instagram, where she has been celebrating people of color to attend Burning Man and kind of documenting their stories and how did they get there? And how can we bring more people of color there? I think there's less than 1% Black people that go to this event of 70,000 people that takes place in the desert, including notable people like P. Diddy, but we'll move on. And so I think the best way to get around that is just to do the thing, to do the thing, enjoy the thing, and to share that thing as far and as wide as possible. And that can be something as simple as posting on social media and showing that this is the thing that I enjoy. And I think this is the thing that you can enjoy. And I think with a lot of these sports, rewinding back to what I said earlier about the big part of the reason why most people of color don't do it is because our parents didn't do it. And there's lots of reasons as to why 20 or 30 years ago, it was tough for black people to afford a sport like this and all of these other reasons. But a big part of that, what, what creates the difficulty in getting into the sport if your parents didn't do it is you don't have that adult there teaching you the simple stuff like, this is how you put on a ski boot. This is how you buckle up a ski boot in a way that's not going to destroy your feet and give you crippling pain for the rest of your life. These things sound so simple to someone that's been doing it the whole, for their whole life, or even someone that's been doing it for five or 10 years. But if you were to give a normal human being a ski boot and watch them try to get in it without telling them, 
they would hurt, they would literally hurt themselves. And so it's almost as if it's our responsibility to be a steward of those around us and to have patience and to have the enthusiasm to help those people come in and to help them with the simple things. Because it's embarrassing to be a 30-year-old and to ask simple questions like, but wait, how do I put this ski boot on? And which way do the skis go? And like how, you know, this very, very equipment heavy, very complicated sport and all of the stuff that just seems so simple and second nature to someone that's been doing for the whole life for a long period of time, it's actually not that intuitive. I really enjoy teaching my friends how to ski because I can remember five years ago, standing on the top of those black runs and looking down and just thinking, I'm just going to fall and I'm going to just start going hundred miles an hour and fly off the side of the mountain. And this is going to end badly. And for being able to teach someone that that's not the case and the techniques that they can employ to prevent that from happening is much more rewarding for me than someone that's been doing it their whole life. And they have no concept of that fear because they started on the mountain when they were two, three, four years old. They don't remember those feelings, those sensations. Yeah, that's important. And it's something that I have to, I mean, I've been skiing most of my life. So it's something that I have to continually remind myself of. But teaching the kids, because, you know, I'm I'm an auntie now. I've got all the nieces mm. and they're getting into ages where we're starting to put them on skis. And that's my job. And it's my favorite job of all the jobs that I have. Yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> so you've, you've mentioned ice skating a few times. And in an interview on Blister with Jonathan Ellsworth, you said something that exploded my brain. You said that there's a rule on the books that if you live in a country without a skating rink, you can't compete in skating. Talk to me about that. And then talk to me, have you come up across any other sort of legislated gatekeeping? So we're at an impasse with that. Richard Saab is the gentleman who set up the Jamaican Ski Federation. He set it up 25 years ago in a bid for his son, Andrew, to be the first Jamaican to go to the Olympics as an alpine ski racer. So Andrew was the first ever registered ski racer, but he never made it to the Olympics. Richard, before his sudden passing in a car crash at the end of 2021, was working on trying to either A, change this rule, B, find some loophole to this rule, such as just setting up a very, very small ice skating rink, you know, 20 foot by 10 foot type thing. And then showing the IOC that here we, we have a solution to this. Jamaica actually has a couple of solid figure skaters that could potentially qualify for the Olympics were it not for this rule. I haven't come across any other barriers like that that have just almost unfairly prevented smaller nations from, from being a part of the Olympics. And we are still working on trying to change this. So Christopher Smoother is the president of the Jamaican Olympic Association. And we are trying to petition this in time for 2026. But no, it, it, it is crazy, right? That it's just like, that just doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. I mean, that would be like saying you can't compete in bobsledding unless you have a bobsledding track in, in, in your country. And we know that we wouldn't have had that beautiful thing that happened in 1988 in our history had that have been the case. So fortunately, that's the only one that I know of. But I'm sure as we dig deeper, we try to get into more and more sports and to try to kind of push the envelope and in different disciplines, I'm sure there'll be many other little hiccups like that we come across. So you've talked about eight athletes that you're working with right now. Is there anyone we should be looking, who should we be looking for? Who should we be paying attention to? Or can you tell us yet? Well, so the most interesting thing, and I think you may have heard this if you listen to Jonathan's podcast so regularly, I've been on two or three of them now. Three of them? Yeah. So there are three athletes who are, I think, going to be collectively the biggest news story of the 2026. I think I was probably one of the biggest news stories of 2022 and the, you know, behind Eileen Gu and Chloe Kian and the failures of Michaela Schiffering. 
probably in the top five or top 10 athletes in terms of coverage from a kind of media impression standpoint. I think these three athletes are going to blow that out of the water because they will be the, the Jamaican Alpine ski racing triplets. And so they have been skiing their entire life. They have been ski racing for 10 years. They just turned 15 a few years ago. So they'll be 18 at the 2026 games. And so I'm super excited. They aren't fist racers yet because they just missed that by, by a couple of months. So they'll be starting in fist next season. Super excited to see what they do. I think I might know who you're talking about, but we're not saying, yeah. we're not saying names yet. Not yet. <laughs> okay. Well, when it's time to say names, <laughs> there aren't many triplets of color that ski. There aren't. No, they're, they're few and far between. I mean, our listeners who have been paying attention, I think you might be able to figure it yeah. out. <laughs> so what about you? I mean, you're obviously your work life is nutty and you're all over the place. Are, are you going to compete again? No. So going from having my first ever race in January of 2020, and then of course the pandemic stopping all of that stuff and then kind of standing in the start gate in Beijing in February of 2022, there's a, there's a very definitive ceiling to how quickly you can learn something as difficult and as technical as the sport of ski racing. To give a perspective, the athlete who finished one place ahead of me has been, has been ski racing for 15 years. So my goal was merely to qualify as a proof of concept, show that this thing is possible with the icing on the cake that I may be able to hold the flag and be the flag bearer in the opening ceremony, which I was able to do, which was fantastic. That's a, a memory that I'll have to life. But there's no delusions of grandeur. I'm a very, very, very pragmatic person. And I knew that just surviving that course was going to be the, 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 the peak of whatever I could achieve. And so as a result of that, I have given up with the ski racing. I achieved what I wanted to do. I ticked the box. I will ski every day that I can possibly ski when I have the ability to. I'm completely addicted to the sport and it will be with me for the rest of my life. I think today was day 45 or 46 of the season and we're recording this on the 27th of January. So it's been pretty much full on since I first got on snow in the first week of second week of December. But from a competitive standpoint, I want to go back to the months of the feeling of it's team human against the mountain, everyone has fun, everyone gets to the bottom safely, and then we have a great meal of beer and we laugh about the fun things we did today. The whole element of turning the sport into this highly competitive thing, that's, that's in the rearview mirror. Now I'm hoping to mentor the next generation, so, and, and particularly so that those athletes can really just focus on the athleticism and the athletic requirements of getting to the Olympics and performing and not have to worry about the business side of it or the administrative side of it or, or any of that. So I'm not looking to manage them. I, I don't want to have any financial interest in, in their upside, but I just want to give them the smooth path to whatever their dreams and goals are as it pertains to the Olympics. And I mean, you certainly have the skill set for that. You've got you know, this incredibly diverse background of running a business, of working in finance. So, I mean, mm. you, must be able, you must have so many of these skills to be able to leverage, to support, you know, mentoring these individuals, because this is an incredibly, it's not just a complex sport. It's a complex machine. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I often say to people that my age is definitely, was definitely not something that helped me qualify, but the experience that I had along the way in those many different hats that I wore professionally to get to that point definitely helped me get there. And I probably wouldn't have got there had I been five or 10 years younger, had I missed any one of those major kind of 
roles professionally that all kind of came together to help me understand this machine, this, this system, and to kind of play it in a way to get the attention of sponsors, get the attention of mentors, get the attention, like understand the system of qualification and all of that stuff. So yeah, I'm hoping to be able to share that skill set with the next generation. So now that you have decided to leave competition behind you, are you still a speed demon or are you seeking out powder experiences? 67 miles an hour is what we hit today. And there's just this one run here that's just super fun. And it just, I, I ski with a buddy of mine every day. He's my roommate. And there's this one run for those that come to, to Revelstoke. It's the bottom part of Snow Rodeo as you get to the mid-mountain that just opens up. And no matter how tired my legs are or whether I've decided that I'm just going to ski at a safe pace, it's just impossible not to get into a tuck and just see how fast you go. So absolutely a speed demon. And we always get to the mid-mountain part of that run just in laughter, just like big smiles on our face. And we keep doing it. And that's why I do it. But absolutely love the, the powder side of things. And so I'll, I'll keep pushing both sides. I did have my race shipped up to me here in Revelstoke. I'm hoping not to have to use them. I'm hoping that the snow keeps on coming down. So yeah, I'll do both. Awesome. Awesome. Is that your home mountain now? Is that where you're going to base for the winter or? Just a part uh, I mean, yeah, I'm moving around a bit. So I did some skiing out further west in Whistler and in Sun Peaks and Cannon Loops, which was great. We're doing a bit of Pelly skiing out here next week. There's a big event of mine that, uh, that my friends organized, sorry, called Send It that's happening. It's about 150 tech entrepreneurs that come to Revelstoke, which is super fun. But Revelstoke is going to be home for most of this winter, yeah. Nice. Nice. There are worse places to post out. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so... Tell me about what's next for you. I mean, you've got this incredible, you know, this initiative that you're, you know, proof of concept in Jamaica and you're going to be working through this. But what about you? What's what's your ski world look like? What's your, you know, next bucket list for you? So from a skiing point of view, I think the next bucket list would actually be to get back down to South America. In 2018, when I was such a new skier, I had left the 20 days of skiing under my belt, maybe even less than two weeks. I did this fantastic trip where I skied a few of the mountains outside of Santiago, Chile, then drove over a thousand miles round trip to go and see Thomas de Chian and Caralco in the south of the country. Took a bus across the border into Argentina, down to Patagonia and skied Bariloche and a couple of other mountains in that area. And what's interesting, as someone that's new to something, your understanding of a thing is limited by your knowledge. And you can look at an instructional video. I'll, I'll give an example. I love backgammon. I'm completely obsessed by backgammon, have been since the pandemic. I found it to be the perfect counterpoint to skiing in the daytime and using my body. In the evening, I could just play backgammon and understand the strategy of the game. And it's very mental and it requires zero kind of athleticism. And what's really interesting is when you are learning anything, you can be presented with a set of facts and you can only understand that to the best of your ability. I could now go back to some of the kind of tuitional videos or matches, shall we say, that I was watching online a year ago and have a much deeper understanding of that because my knowledge has improved. And the same applies to something like skiing. So going to all these fantastic mountains with only 15 days of skiing, 20 days of skiing under my belt, and now going back with near on 500 days of skiing under my belt, those things are going to be completely different. And the experiences that I'll have there will be completely different as a result of that. So I'm very keen to get the opportunity to go back to her. As it pertains to supporting the next generation, it's a very seasonal, obviously it's a very seasonal pursuit. And so 
you know, for three or four months of, of the year, I'll be highly engaged and the whole world turns on to skiing is interested in many stories. And then for the other eight months of the year, I'll be following my other pursuits. And I see myself sitting somewhere in the, in the tech sector. I started to work for a tech startup in, in, at the end of last year that didn't work out. And so I decided that I'll be a ski bum for another, for another winter with the kind of public speaking engagements that I have lined up over the region for the next few months. Amazing. As you said, it's January 27th. Do you have any X Games predictions? Oh, you know, it's really interesting. That that whole world just sits in a completely different world to mine. Out here on you know, Pacific time, I will stay up till one thirty in the morning to watch Michaela or to watch Marco Odomat ski at, you know, in, the, in the European morning. But as it pertains to X Games, it's just a different world. Other than the you know, superstars that capture a lot of the, the attention, whether that's Chloe Kim or Eileen Gu, I don't really know many of the athletes over the ones that are on the same sponsor brand as, as me. So no predictions, unfortunately. Sorry. That's okay. That's okay. And now there's, you have no opportunities to be wrong. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I will predict that Michaela will get to over 100 World Cup wins in her life. You know, she's 27 years old. She's in great condition. She hasn't had any major injuries. She specializes in disciplines where she's less likely to really hurt herself, unlike with Lindsay in the speed discipline. And she could really go on to just crush into our Stedman's record and be the greatest alpine skier of all time and a record that's going to be really, 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 really challenging for anyone to get close to. And it's been super exciting to watch the whole process. And it's been really amazing to watch her bounce back from the Olympics as if nothing happened. Absolutely. Her op-ed after the Olympics was really important. I recommend that everyone... Everyone read it because it's an important discussion on mental health yeah. and, and what we expect out of our athletes. So before we go, two things that I want to ask you. First, you were saying that you wanted to bring a coach down. So for the listeners, for the broader audience, what do you need? How do we support you? Right. So the big criteria qualification for the Olympics in, in cross country, it's 10 kilometers for women, 15 kilometers for men. It clicks each year between classic or skate freestyle. And so this coming 2026 games, it's going to be classic. And so I'm looking for a couple of things. I'm looking for a coach that would be willing to teach a bunch of incredible athletes how to use roller skis, roller classic skis in Jamaica, in beautiful Jamaica. And I'm sure we can figure out some incredible accommodation. And to basically be the John Candy of this incredible story of finding the next generation of cross-country athletes for the 2026 games. So if anyone is a cross-country coach, they can find me on Instagram. It's just Benji, B-E-N-J-I dot ski. And then if anyone's listening is representing a brand that is a cross-country brand that would also be interested in doing this, same thing, reach out and see what's going on. I, as I said earlier, I really feel like this could be the unlock to bring many, many millions more people into the world of cross-country. And I'm super, super excited by that. Awesome. Last but not least, where do we find you? Plug your sponsors. Give me all the stuff. Yeah. So I ride all of Atomic gear, which is amazing. Atomic have been so good to me. Steo is a brand out of Jackson Hole, Wyoming, STIO. They are doing phenomenally well and they're expanding rapidly around the world. I swear by my heated socks, Lens, L-E-N-Z. They are incredible. Oakley being good to me as well. And the mountains have just been so, most mountains that I go to have been really nice and helping with tickets. And I've been an ambassador for Jackson Hole in Wyoming for the last few years. And I'm now an ambassador this year for Revel Soak here in Canada as well. Amazing. Your heated socks and reheated boots. Well, I still wear my race boots. Ah, uh, oh. Yeah. Okay. Pain. Pain. <laughs> <laughs> 
I have a funny story where I put, I, I, I set up an ice bath today where I poured some cold water, filled it with snow from outside, put some Epsom salts in it, and really thought that I was going to be able to keep my feet in there for a good five, 10 minutes. I think I lasted about 35 seconds. <laughs> Oh, you're a braver soul than I. That is not on the <laughs> oh, oh, Thank you so much for coming on. This has been, a, I'm so glad we finally got to link up. I know we sort of missed each other in the fall. Listeners, all of the links that we talked about and the organizations we talked about, you're going to find those links on the show notes. Benji, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. And again, I'm, like you said, I'm happy we made it work. And that's a wrap for our first episode of the season. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. Links on where to find Benji are available on the show notes at bipocalypse.com. I hope this episode blew your mind the way it did mine. And if it did, don't hesitate to smash the like button. I hope you'll join us again for another episode of Bipocalypse.